happy Father's Day to our dads. We had a great time celebrating this morning. Uh, we had Andrew Clark was out there slinging burgers out the front footpath, did an amazing job, fed the multitudes. It was a good time. Well, it is a great night to be here in church because we are carrying on with a series that we began uh, now four weeks ago uh, called Come Away. And what we've been doing in this series is we have been exploring a very interesting book of the Bible uh, we've been looking at the book of the Song of Solomon, or as it's also, wise, or also otherwise known as, is the Song of Songs. Now, this book is an incredible book. It gives us a picture of the journey that we go on from spiritual immaturity to spiritual maturity. And I'm really looking forward to getting stuck into tonight's message because we are gonna be looking at one of the most important parts of that journey where God allows us to be tested. <laughs> And so it's a fork in the road moment where we either become more like him and more in love with him or we draw back in disappointment, in fear, and in offense. And so as we explore parts of chapters five through seven tonight, what I hope you will see is that if we allow him to purify us in the testing, then we become more like him in our being. Before we get into that, I recognize this is a big series. We are covering a lot of ground, and although you can listen to some of the previous messages online, I just wanna do a quick recap for anyone who's joining us for the first time tonight. Make sure you're up to speed. Uh, but I am gonna keep that short because Sarah has said that these recaps are getting a little too long, so sorry about that if you're here from previous weeks. Um, the other thing, now, here's your first moment of testing. Uh, I don't have any lollies this week, sorry. Uh, so, ah, uh, yeah, you're one, one big, oh no. Uh, so um, that means you're gonna have to just do it for treasure in heaven, sorry. Yeah, or extra bacon, yeah, that's right. Some, someday for some bacon. Right, so first question, can someone tell me who's been here for the series so far if we are interpreting the Song of Solomon literally or allegorically? Raise your hand. Oh, we got some lollies, all right, great. Yes, Linda. Literally, no, it's the other one. What's the other one? Allegorically, that's the one. You got it. Here's some milk duds. Yes, allegorically, we are exploring the book from a spiritual perspective where the song is a parable of our journey into spiritual maturity. You can interpret it literally. That's valid as well, but that's not the approach we're taking in this series. Next question, who's the three main characters of this book? Yes, Peter. Yep. Bride and the friends? Yes, the bride, the bridegroom, and the friends. Well done, sir. Oh, sorry. Ah, Emma, you were just talking about what a bad shot I am. I am a bad shot. Yes, the bride of the story represents us. The bridegroom represents God, and particularly Jesus, who is God. And the friends are other believers. Next question, last week we talked about how the bride sees the bridegroom for the very first time in his position as what? Who said it? Yes, good, Rose. Oh, it's coming back to you. Yeah, great, great catch, well done. Yes, she realizes he's the king for the first time. He's not just her lover, he is also the king. And therefore he doesn't just deserve her love, he also deserves her adoration. So in response to that new understanding of just how worthy he is, the bride prays a prayer. Can anyone tell me what that prayer was? Song of Solomon 4, 16. 
Well, it's a harder one. Yes, David. Ah, uh, nope. Sorry. Good effort. Yes, does have winds. Yes. North wind and south wind. Yes. Well done. I was going to try to get it into your teacup, actually. That would have been really impressive. Yes, she prays, awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. In other words, come winds of blessing, but also come winds of testing. Why? Because blessing is not enough to shape us into who we are called to be. We must also be tested, for the testing of our faith produces in us the endurance that is needed to go for it for the long haul. So we talked last week about how the bride, she prays this prayer in response to seeing how worthy her bridegroom is and how the more worthy you realize he is, the more your faith becomes about him and the less it becomes about you. And this is where we are gonna pick up our story tonight, right after the bride prays for the winds of testing to come. And God does give her what she asks for. And although it leads to a very dark night for her, the brightness of what she emerges with far outshines what she goes through to get it. But before we get stuck into that, I'm gonna have a drink of water and then we're gonna pray. Ah, would you bow your head with me? Jesus, we thank you for this wonderful book. Lord, the one of 66 that are in our Bibles. Uh, word, uh, sorry, a book that can speak to us, a book that can instruct us, that can disciple us, that can give us a picture of something beautiful about your love and about who you are. And so, Holy Spirit, I just pray for a spirit of wisdom and revelation to rest upon us tonight. God, that you would uh, help us to behold your glowing beauty tonight. God, that we would see that beauty that comes from being refined in the fire of testing. And I pray that we would catch a vision for what that testing can mean in our own lives so that when you, uh, when you invite us to step into those places of testing, that we don't draw back, but we see it for what it is, an invitation to become more like you. So we give you this time, welcome you and your ministry tonight, Holy Spirit, and we thank you in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. Should I keep these up here for me? <laughs> oh, yes, you get some too. You got the smarties because you're so smart. <laughs> we are purified in the testing so that we can become more like him in our being. So God spoke very dramatically to get Sarah and I to New Zealand, and that made us think that when we got off the plane that we were stepping into full-scale revival. <laughs> we were expecting big things. And so you can imagine my surprise when instead we got here, and for the very first two and a half years that we were here in New Zealand, God was mostly frustratingly and annoyingly silent. And you know, I had to get a job, and when you come in on a working holiday visa, it's actually kind of hard to get a job uh, because everyone knows you're only here for like a year and so nobody wants to hire you, which means the jobs that are available to somebody on that visa are the jobs nobody else really wants. So I get the worst job of my life. I start working at this uh, sandwich shop at the Christchurch Airport and um, <laughs> the hours were terrible. Started at 4 a.m. Sorry, I know you medical people are like, ah, it's no problem, buddy. 
but for me, it was really rough. Uh, hours were terrible. The people were mean. Uh, they made me wear this stupid little hat with some smiley faces on it. And um, apologies if you have to do that for, for your job now. But for me, at the time, it was a very undignifying experience. So after a year, I did upgrade slightly. I shifted to the coffee shop next door, which, which was an upgrade. Uh, but still not great. And I was just kind of like, God, why did you dramatically call me to the South Pacific if all you wanted me to do was just crank out flat whites? <laughs> Couldn't I have done that at home? And so I was just really confused. And I would ask the Lord all the time, why am I in this job? Why do you have me in this spot? And he would just answer with silence. Two and a half years goes by since we moved to New Zealand. And one day, the Lord breaks the silence. It's just an ordinary day at the coffee machine. And clear as day, I hear him speaking inside my chest. He says, Josh, do you want to know why I've kept you here all this time? Yes. 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 Have you not been hearing me all this time? And I'll never forget what he said. He said, I needed to desensitize you to mean people. Mean people. Mean people. Oh, yeah, mean. Uh, angry, mean, not nice people. Yeah. Needed to desensitize you to mean people. So he says this enigmatic statement. Oh, okay, what's that about? <laughs> Week later, we find out Sarah's dad uh, gets diagnosed with cancer. We leave that, I leave that job. We go back to the States for four months, and we come back after that wrapped up, and he had his surgery, and we get here, and without me searching for it, without me seeking it, the day after I get back here, I'm offered a job to work for this church. And so the season changed, and turns out, as a pastor, sometimes you got to deal with some mean people. <laughs> But it's the minority. It's mostly, it's mostly really lovely people. <laughs> and hey, look, I definitely didn't suffer as bad as you can suffer. Okay, I've got some friends who have gone through some way worse situations than that. And so I don't want to overstate my suffering. And in the big scheme of things, it actually wasn't that bad. I mean, I did lose my dignity, but there was free coffee. So that was good. Uh, but uh, I still haven't gotten over the shakes from that time in my life. Uh, so anyway, I tell you this story because that was a real time of testing for me personally. All sorts of ugly things came out of me during that time, especially when I felt mistreated by the people around me. Now, we finished last week's message looking at Song of Solomon 4.16, the bride prays not only for the south winds of blessing, but also for the north winds of testing to come to her. And we're going to get stuck back into that text in just a moment, but I need to offer some context before we get there. Uh, so the Bible uses this language of testing all over the place. And I wanted to define what this means. The dictionary defines a test as a, quote, procedure intended to establish the quality, performance, or reliability of something, especially before it is taken into widespread use. So to test something is to reveal whether something is up for the job of whatever it is designed for. Now on its face, it can kind of seem a little bit cruel for God to test us. I mean, after all, doesn't he already love us? What is there to prove? And the answer to that is yes, he does love us. 
He loves us too much to leave us how he found us because we are in desperate need of transformation. And so all of us have to go on this journey where we leave behind a life of sin and we become more and more like him. And the truth is, God is not the only one who tests things, okay? I'd wager you test things all the time. (laughs) You know, you'll do a taste test of your cooking before you serve it to your guests so you can make sure that it tastes all right, right? My cooking usually fails that test. Uh, That's why Sarah does the cooking. Uh, we, um, We test our medical students so we can be sure that they are ready to cut people open and treat real illnesses, right? That's important. We test the person we go on a date with with certain questions so we can work out, are they gonna be a good match for me or are they a serial killer? It's an important thing to figure out. Uh, We test our politicians with questions and we watch how they respond under pressure so we can work out, are they qualified to run our country? We are constantly testing people and things and we are also constantly being tested ourselves. And that's not a bad thing. Here's why. Testing prepares people for certain responsibilities and testing also reveals if someone is ready to be given those responsibilities. So that's pretty important. Now, anyone who's been on a few dates or been through a university program knows that testing involves some suffering. And when God tests his people, there is some suffering involved. Now, here's an interesting question. Does this mean that all suffering is a test from God? No, I don't believe so. Some suffering comes from our bad choices. That's why 1 Peter says, and 1 Peter, uh, is this the one I got wrong? Is it 4.15? Sorry, I got this. It might be wrong in your notes. Sorry, Emma caught this earlier. Anyway, it's in 1 Peter. It says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. I didn't know what meddler meant, so I looked into that a bit. That just means somebody who delights in stirring up trouble. (laughs) So if you play with fire, you can't complain when you get burned, right? So that's one type of suffering. Another type of suffering like sickness, spiritual attack, that comes from the physical brokenness of our world and also the spiritual forces that are at work in that world. And I believe in many cases, we should actually have a posture of resistance towards this type of suffering, not acceptance. Can God use that type of suffering to shape us? Absolutely he can. He can take beauty from ashes. And it can even be really beautiful when he does that. But trusting God through it is different than accepting it as if he caused it. Does that make sense? But that's a different sermon. It's not the type of suffering that we are mostly focusing on tonight. The suffering we are focusing on tonight is the suffering that comes from the testing of our faith. It is the type of suffering depicted in the Song of Solomon, and it is the predominant suffering that was experienced by Jesus and his followers across the New Testament. What is this type of suffering? One word. (sighs) Mistreatment. Yay. Few things will test you more in this life than mistreatment. And it's one of the primary ways that God tests the faith of his followers. 
Now, testing through mistreatment has two primary purposes. The first one is that testing reveals something. So my brother-in-law, Casey, works for a company in Michigan that tests cars before they're ready to be sold to the general public. He has a very cool job. And he works at this place, it's a track, they actually call it the, um, the Proving Grounds. I think that's such a cool name. And so basically, they just take these really expensive cars and they crash them, they punch the brakes, they just abuse the heck out of these cars. And they test these cars that way for a reason. They test the cars in order to prove that the cars can actually do what they are supposed to be able to do. Is the car going to protect its occupants or is it gonna kill them? Uh, is the car gonna stop like it's supposed to or is it gonna run over somebody's grandma? Will the heated leather seats warm their backs or will it roast them alive? Okay, really important things to make sure before you get into your Toyota. So in a sense, what testing is doing is it is revealing if the cars are worthy of our trust. So we test things and we test people in order to determine if we can trust them. And that's why they test cars at the Proving Grounds in Michigan. Now, in a similar way, mistreatment is the proving grounds of our faith, where we are abused, crashed into, and mistreated for a time, not forever, in order to prove the trustworthiness and the genuineness of where we are in our faith. 1 Peter 1 says this in verse 6. It says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested or some translations say proven, genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Different substances melt at different temperatures. And so when you heat something up, you can tell what it is made out of by the way that it reacts to that heat. And so if you wanna find out What's inside someone? Just mistreat them. <laughs> you will find out real quick what people are like when you see how they act under that kind of pressure. <laughs> I had just written this line and I was driving home and this guy cuts me off and I was like, me. I was like, how dare he? And I was like, oh no, it's the message. Oh, it's like, still got some work to do. <laughs> But you know, I found out real quick when I was working in that coffee shop, I had a problem with pride. I had a problem with some entitlement. And you know, you find out what people are like when they get mistreated. Do they laugh? Do they lash out? Do they grow bitter? Do they get angry? Do they want revenge? Now, how do most people react when they get mistreated? Most people get offended, they get angry, and they get bitter. That's what most people do. Therefore, most people end up worse off after being mistreated. But Jesus has a better way for us, which leads us to the second purpose of testing. Purpose number two, testing refines. When gold or silver comes out of the mountain, it is actually full of impurities. You don't just find like a gold brick <laughs> when you pull it out of the mountain. And so a refiner is someone who takes precious metals and they heat them up to incredible temperatures. And when they do, the impurities rise to the surface and then are able to be scooped off, leaving pure silver or pure gold beneath. 
Now, Zechariah 13 speaks of God in this sort of role, saying, And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver, and I will test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, They are my people, and they will say, The Lord is my God. So God uses fire. He uses heat to test us. Now, what does that look like practically? First Peter 4 tells us, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Friends, I want you to hear me on something tonight. God will use the fiery testing of mistreatment to refine you just like the gold. Because when we are mistreated, the impurities of our soul rise to the surface very, very quickly. And if we double down on those impurities and we become offended and we become bitter, then the gold ends up tainted. But if we surrender those impurities over to God when they appear, we will be purified and left with something far more beautiful than what we started with. Remember, testing is not the end goal. Testing is always unto transformation. He's a refiner, and if we let him, he will purify the glowing metal of our souls and shape them into treasures. After all, we're purified in the testing so we can become like him in our being. All right, we're gonna dive back into the Song of Solomon. That's my context. The bride has prayed her prayer. She's asked God not just for his blessing, but for his testing. And the song at this point transitions to a new scene in chapter five, and it depicts the darkest night of the bride's soul. St. John of the Cross, he once described this time of soul-level turmoil as the dark night of of the soul has nothing to do with Batman. I checked. <laughs> I thought that was funny. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yes, dark night of the soul. And this is David hiding in the cave of Adullam from King Saul. It is Joseph in the darkness of the prison. It is Job after he's lost everything. It is a time of utter spiritual turmoil. So let's take a look in verse two of chapter five. It says, I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. So the bride's asleep, and it's nighttime. It's dark, and it's still. And out of the quiet comes a knock at the door. She gets up, goes to the door. I imagine she opens the door just a crack. And standing out under the stars, it's her bridegroom. But he looks really different than how she last saw him. Last time she saw him, he was wearing a crown and a royal procession. He was a king dressed in the finest robes. 
but now his clothes and his hair is all wet. Looks like he's been outside all night. And he says, will you open to me, my love? For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. You see, there was a time when God got his hair wet with the dew of the night. It was the night that Jesus was betrayed when he was in the garden of Gethsemane. The night where he pleaded with his father, Father, please take this cup away from me. The night where he pleaded with his followers, his closest friends, would you just stay awake a little longer with me? It was the night when he prayed with such intensity and such such anguish of soul that it says his sweat became like drops of blood. It was the night where God was put to the ultimate test, where God would be led away to be mistreated and to suffer and to bleed and to die on a cross. And so it is this vulnerable God, this bridegroom whose hair is wet with the dew of the night, who is standing in her doorway and pleading with his bride to open to him and to know him in a different way than she's ever seen him before. It's an invitation, an invitation to know her bridegroom, not just as the man who is wearing a crown of glory, but to know him as a man who is also wearing a crown of thorns. To know him not just as a God who is Lord over those who suffer, but as a God who suffers with them too. And I imagine the bride stares at him for a moment hesitating but then of course she will open for her beloved she continues she says I put off my garment how could I put it on I had bathed my feet how could I soil them my beloved put his hand to the latch and my heart was thrilled within me I arose to open to my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. Now remember, like we talked about, myrrh is a burial spice. Myrrh speaks of a, a death to self that is somehow both terrible but also somehow fragrant and beautiful. So the bride says yes. Here's what happens next, verse six. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. And so she opens to him, and suddenly, he's gone. She calls out to him, her voice echoing in the night. No response. She steps out of her house, begins walking the streets, looking for him, calling out to him. No response. It is a divine silence. It's Jesus on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, there is only one time when the teacher is silent, and that is during a test. So the song continues. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat me. They bruised me. They took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. The bride is ambushed 
by the watchmen. I believe this speaks of the authorities in her life. And they, they mistreat her. And they take away her veil, which speaks of her position. And I believe this is a picture of what happens to us when we're mistreated. When we are attacked, we are, we are wounded, we are bruised by those attacks. They leave a mark on us. It hurts us. And in many cases, we are stripped of something, be it our position or our sense of belonging or our sense of safety. And so the bride is experiencing what Peter called the fiery trial. She is being tested by mistreatment. And now she has a choice. It's not an easy choice, but it's a choice. How is she going to react? Will she grow offended? Will she grow angry? Will she draw back in fear? Will she look for revenge? Let's see what she chooses. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. What does she choose? Against all odds, she chooses love. In the midst of her mistreatment, in the midst of the pain of it, in the midst of the injustice of it all, she calls out and essentially says, I don't know where my beloved is right now and I don't really understand what's happening right now or why he's allowing it to happen to me right now. But I do know one thing and that thing is this, I love him, I love him, I love him. So if you see him, you tell that man, there is no fire too hot and there is no chasm too wide for me to cross for him. You tell that man, he still has my heart. She chooses Jesus in the darkest night of her soul. Now, if the song ended there with suffering and darkness, it would be a sad ending indeed. But testing is never the end of the story. But rather, testing is the proving ground for the beginning of something beautiful. Because those psalm singers of old once told me that though sorrow may last for the night, joy comes in the morning. And although the sunset gave way to that terrible night in Gethsemane, just three days later, the dawn of hope came radiating over the horizon on the day that Jesus walked out of that grave with the keys to death clutched within his fist and when he leads us into that same dark grave that he went running into he is just as faithful to raise us up in the end so that we come running out with him just as radiant as he is after all we are purified in the testing so that we can become like him in our being and you see just like the gold that is refined in the fiery furnace. The bride comes out of this time of testing and something about her has changed. Something about her is glowing hot. She has not been defeated by the darkness. She has been set ablaze by it. So the sun rises after the dark night of the soul and the scene, it changes in the book. And the friends, they hear the bride asking them to tell the bridegroom she's lovesick. And they go, who is this man that you would still, still love him after all of that? What do you know about him that we don't know? Because this does not make sense to us. 
And so she responds, and you guys, this right here, this is my favorite verse in all of the Song of Solomon, my favorite one. Because although the bride has stripped, was stripped of something in the night, she has emerged with something profound and it is glowing. Take a look, Song 5, verse 10. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. Now, if you only read this in English, you will miss it completely, okay? This verse is like rays of sunlight coming out of the middle of your Bible. English cannot contain its power. It's got too many layers to it, so we have to unpack it. It says, my beloved is radiant. The Hebrew word here is zak. It means white. It means dazzling. It means clear. It means glowing. It is a word that evokes the purest light, a clearness that is both dazzling and glowing with radiance. It is like staring at the surface of a star. It is like distilled water in its purity. It is utterly radiant and it is utterly beautiful. The verse also says, my beloved is ruddy. The Hebrew word for this is adom and it literally means red. He is scarlet. He is both pure white and vibrantly red. It evokes pictures like the saints described in Revelation 7 and 22 who wash their pure white robes in the scarlet blood of the lamb. It is a color that evokes his ultimate redemption, his wearing of red so that we can wear white. And he is distinguished among 10,000. The NIV says he's outstanding among 10,000. The NKJV says he is chief among 10,000. Meaning if you put this guy in a group of 10,000 men, you would notice him immediately. That is the magnitude of his appearance. It's almost like the bride is catching a glimpse of what the apostle John saw when he wrote in Revelation chapter one. Starting in verse 12, he said, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burning bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. The bride has emerged from her time of testing with something far more valuable than anything she lost going through it. And you guys, it is the deepest, most precious kind of treasure that you can find in your relationship with God. And that treasure is this. She comprehends just how beautiful he really is. And to behold his beauty is to comprehend how worthy he is. And you know, this is different than last week's message where we looked at in that passage, she comprehended her bridegroom's worth because of his position as king. But now she comprehends his worth because of who he is innately. She's not just in love with his job title. She's in love with who he is and how beautiful he really is. 
And so she goes on in verses 11 to 15 to describe how stunning he is. And then she finishes with this in verse 16. She says, his mouth is most sweet and he is altogether desirable. Some translations say altogether lovely. This is my beloved and this is my friend. This is the first time she refers to him as a friend. And I think that's significant because she's increasingly identifying as the bridegroom's peer, as his equal of sorts. Now that's outrageous. <laughs> but it's because she has partaken in what is described in Philippians 3.10. She has come to know Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings and she has become like him. After all, we're purified in the testing so that we become like him in our being. Song moves on, chapter six, the bridegroom. And he's just watched his bride pass the ultimate test. And he is beaming with pride. It says in verse four, you are beautiful as Tirzah, my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn your eyes away from me, for they overwhelm me. When God's people choose him in the dark, he is undone. He marvels. He's a proud father. He's a proud husband. And he says his bride is like an army with banners. She is utterly victorious. And so he continues with this poetic description of his bride's loveliness in the following verses, even saying her hair is like a flock of goats, which let's be honest is the best compliment anyone can receive. If you ever want to tell me that about me, I will take it as a great compliment. You can also say it about my beard as well. Love my beard complimented. <laughs> Sorry, still got some stuff needs to be refined out, I guess. Uh, so he then describes his bride like this. He says in 610, who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? Meaning she went into the forge of that dark night and she came out glowing just like he does. How beautiful is that? I had this girl in my Bible school I went to school with, and she was from a country in Central Asia. And I heard some of her stories. Her and her sister were terribly, terribly persecuted by Islamic extremists in this country. And they were threatened, they were beaten, and at one point, a terrorist came into their church and detonated a bomb, killed a whole bunch of her friends. It was really terrible. And you would think that going through something like that might dim or extinguish something of her, her love for Jesus. But when this girl would talk about Jesus, there was this glow that just came over her face. And I think it was the glow of someone who discovered the refining fire of Christ that can only be found in the testing. It's the glow of someone who discovered what was truly valuable once everything else had been stripped away. <laughs> and so now we come to the close of this part of the song and the close of the message. The bride has emerged from the testing, having been refined in the fire, and she is utterly aglow. Just like the metal coming out of the furnace, she was purified in the testing, and now she looks like him in her being. May we also have the courage to meet him in the fire. Would you stand to your feet with me?
So I want to finish with a parable this evening. It's a parable of a woman watching a refiner at work. I really liked it, so I want to share it with you. It says, as she watched the silversmith, he held a piece of silver over the fire and let it heat up. He explained that in refining silver, one needed to hold the silver in the middle of the fire where the flames were hottest in order to burn away all the impurities. The woman thought about God holding us in such a hot spot, and then she thought again about the verse that says he sits as a refiner and purifier of silver. She asked the silversmith if it was true that he had to sit there in front of the fire the whole time the silver was being refined. The man answered that yes, he not only had to sit there holding the silver, but he had to keep his eyes on the silver the entire time it was in the fire. Because if the silver was left for a moment too long in the flames, it would be destroyed. The woman was silent for a moment. And then she asked the silversmith, how do you know when the silver is fully refined? He smiled at her and answered, oh, that's easy. It's when I can see myself reflected in it. The goal of all testing is to become more like him. Testing is not a punishment. It's an invitation. And because he loves you at different times of your life, God will test you. And maybe you've been through some of those sorts of seasons or maybe you're in one right now. And the question is, how are you going to respond? How are you gonna respond when people mistreat you? Are you gonna get offended are you going to get angry? Are you going to puff up? Are you going to demand your rights? Or will you humble yourself and choose the harder way of love, but a way that leads to purification? So we're going to finish tonight with a song. You might know it. might not be familiar to you, but it's a song that's actually this prayer out of Song of Solomon. And I felt really stirred to sing it along with you tonight. And so if you don't quite know the words, that's all right. We'll have them up on the screen. Do your best to, to pray, sing along, pray along. Uh, but I just encourage you to seek God in this moment and make the words of this song your prayer tonight. Let me pray for you. Jesus, I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I thank you for how you are leading them, refining them, setting their soul aglow. And Lord, where we have faced those tests of mistreatment before, and they were hard. And Lord, where we did not yield to you, where we yielded to offense and to bitterness, Lord, I pray, would you give us a second chance? Would you not stop Jesus until our hearts are ablaze for you so that we can lay hold of the true treasures of knowing you so that we don't just paddle around in the shallows of a Christian-y life, but we go in deep so that we can be transformed by you. Meet us in our testing, God. Pour out your grace upon us.
We welcome you, Holy Spirit, and as we go into this time, we ask you to, uh, I ask you to move all across this room, stir hearts, speak to us individually, encourage us, call us forth, call us out onto the waters, call us into the flames of testing. Because just like with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there'd be another one in the fire with us. We say yes to you tonight. In Jesus' name.